If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello and welcome to Philosophy For Our Times. Philosophy For Our Times is brought to you in partnership with the New College of the Humanities, a university-level college offering undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in the heart of London. NCH pride themselves on offering unprecedented access to a world-class academic faculty. Philosophy students at the college are taught by some of the foremost scholars in the field, and one-to-one tutorials create a personalised teaching experience. Choose your major and minor for a unique combined honours degree and study the NCH Diploma to widen your appreciation of the world in ways you'd never thought of before. Go to nchlondon.ac.uk for more information. Think better. Think NCH. This week, we look behind the headlines and see whether innocent until proven guilty remains a core principle of our democracy. Do the social media storms behind hashtag MeToo allow mob rule to become the decider of justice rather than the due process of the legal system? Is this a good thing or a worrying trend and the end of one of the cornerstone principles of a free society? Times columnist David Aranovich, performance artist Emma Sulkovich and criminal barrister and author of In Your Defence, Sarah Langford, consider their verdict. Ritula Shah hosts. So the theme of this debate, innocent until proven guilty, is probably one of the first things any of us learns about the law. Is that fundamental principle being challenged by the way social media is being mobilised around issues like Me Too, and therefore essentially targeting individuals? Think Harvey Weinstein. And if it isn't trial by social media, can more traditional media coverage smear the innocent before they've been formally accused of anything? Or is trial by media an effective way to galvanise a legal system that's sclerotic and slow to respond? So plenty to think about. So I want each of you, in a sense, to talk about can harm to an innocent few be justified on the route to a better society? Emma. I talk about this because... Like, this has happened to me, right? I was sexually assaulted on the first day of my sophomore year at Columbia University. And um, I had bruises on my neck. And I had DNA that would have traced uh, the assault back to the person who raped me. But he spoke about all of those things that I had on my body as consensual, right? Like, I was into kinky sex, right? Like ultimately at the end of the day, the only thing that can prove non-consent is as corny as it seems a quite emotional thing, right? Like in my heart, I didn't want it. Um, And that's 
the thing that you can't prove through physical evidence. So given that proof is actually can be twisted in many different ways by both sides, I think it's important when we talk about this, these big issues to consider what kinds of proof are we actually asking for before we vilify someone. Sorry, it's hard to speak about these things because they're very personal to me. I think that then we have to talk about who's really asking for a trial by media. Um, survivors don't always ask for trial by media, even though when we talk about like the current cases of Me Too, it seems as if all survivors want some sort of trial by media. I think that it's the public that wants trial by media. The general public is not only fascinated by, but also ravenous to consume these sensational stories of sexual assault. I think that survivors often want justice, um, but if a story is interesting enough, it sort of catches flame and uh, becomes trial by media. And the people who, be, who come under the fire of trial by media, we often talk about only the alleged perpetrator as being the victim of trial by media, but actually the survivor is as well. And I think that that actually uh, inhibits many survivors from doing all of the kind of due diligence after being assaulted to get a rape kit. Because, right, they're so, they feel so ashamed that they don't want to start some sort of trial by media or even like a smaller version of trial by media within their own community. So finally, reparative identity construction. So I think that when society consumes these very sensationalized stories of sexual assault, we create the villain and the good guy. And then it's a matter of who, who's the villain, who is the good guy. And um, I think that right now the way it is, is once you're a rapist, you're always a rapist. And that's never going to be conducive to getting people to fess up to any sort of sexual violence that they've ever committed. If anything, it's going to make them hunker down and not want to admit to it. I really want to see a society in which people can admit that they've sexually assaulted someone and then learn from it, change, and no longer be a rapist. I personally don't think that my rapist is a rapist anymore. I think that he's learned his lesson. I, I'm sure that whoever he's dating, he's probably treating really well. Like, I, I think that because of society's fascination with sexual assault, we want to set up these extremely flat caricatures of, like, the, the bad rapist that is always a rapist, is an evil person. So, so those are... Those are my three point. points. Okay. Yeah. David, what do you think? Can harm to an innocent few be justified? The way it starts in my mind is, uh, firstly, is just to say that um, one of the things, you believe it or not, that journalists do, I think Whistler will back me up with this, is you listen. And you probably start the habit of listening from quite an early age. So by the time I was 25, 26, I'd been told by at least three or four girlfriends of mine that I've had at various stages about things that had happened to them. So to take one example, one of them at the age of 16, working in a shop, was taken into the cupboard by the man who ran the shop and raped. Uh, another one uh, at, a par- uh, at a party for her brother was sexually assaulted badly by one of her brother's friends. Another one was actually raped by her brother. They lived on a farm um, and her brother came back drunk. Uh, In none of these cases was the assault so much as reported. 
let alone punished. And it might very well be, I don't know, that the men involved felt a sense of remorse about it subsequently, but nothing that anybody did to them would have, uh, would have given them the idea that somehow or other they were beyond the pale. So that's a kind of, if you like, a kind of deep background. And actually, for most of people who listen and are of certain age, you will have heard similar stories, and some of you, unfortunately, almost certainly will actually have experienced them. On the other hand, um, there is such a thing as a lynch mob. And actually, I thought Emma was really interesting about the question about whether or not such a lynch mob was composed itself of victims or was actually composed in a more psychologically interesting way of people who wanted to identify the other so as to get the idea as far away from them and their own thoughts as possible and locate it all in, somewhere, or locate it all in someone else. Uh, and I think that that was a genuinely... I mean, I, 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 the last point you made, Emma, I thought was really interesting, and I need to think about it Thank a lot. You. I've never really thought about it before. But in the meantime, one of the things that we should look at is, if you like, a kind of the problem of, the, of that strange area between complaint and proof of guilt, and to leave open the possibility to ourselves that actually we don't know what's happened there, and that it is wrong for us to make hard and fast judgments about it without a high degree of knowledge, but to expect and anticipate that other people will be able to try and discover as nearly as possible the truth. I'm just going to give an example which, is prob- which shows the problematic nature of it. After Jimmy Savile was universally condemned and lots of people came forward uh, and complained to the Savile uh, inquiries and so on, there was no doubt that a significant proportion of those complaints uh, were probably true. But amongst them were a whole series of complaints from various places that were actually impossible. They were actually impossible. Jimmy Savile had simply not been at the places ever that he was said to have been been in. This has been completely unreported, by the way, because who's actually going to report it? Um, It suggests... However, I'm only telling you, not because it makes Jimmy Savile innocent of the rest, but because it does show you that there is a potential problem out there that you have at the very... uh, 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 that you always have to recognise. So now let's talk about somebody like Woody Allen. Uh, Woody Allen um, has had a charge made against him, which he completely refutes and his wife also completely refutes, and so on. The accusers are adamant that it happened. He and the people around him are adamant that it didn't. People have made their judgments about whether it did or it didn't without actually any capacity to examine the facts. And the net result is that Woody Allen effectively now can't make a film. Um, that's more or less... See, I'm not asking you to be feel kind of sympathetic about it. You may regard... Uh, after his last couple of films, him not being able to make any more films is a blessing for him <laughs> and for other people. But artistically, you can see that it is that it is that it is in fact a problem. So, all I'm laying out now within this three minutes, which I'll end now, is the dimensions of the problem that we have, particularly when we decide that we want to take sides outside the situation of process. Think about those three women that I talked about and the complete absence of justice for them. You might put it down to the society at that time. And then think about somebody who can be falsely accused and it can happen and so on, um, or who you take the side against simply because you don't like them or because you want to be thought to be virtuous. Very interesting. Sarah? Well, I think I can begin by 
hopefully pulling together Emma's discussion and David's discussion and saying what the law does next. Because that's my own experience, is looking at what the law does next. And fundamentally, one of the jobs of the law is to protect the rights of the individual. Because I believe that uh, how we treat our individuals is a mark of who we are as a society. And our law protects the rights of the individuals both in the civil world by our defamation and libel laws and also by our criminal laws. And the most fundamental, the most obvious one, which has sort of been touched upon a little bit when we've been talking about evidence, is the right to a fair trial, which is longer than we think. The explanation um, that, or, or the definition set out in the Human Rights Act is not only a right to a public trial, a right to an impartial judge, the right to be presumed innocent until the evidence has proved you guilty, but also the right to know the evidence against you and to test it yourself. Uh, and that's where media and social media fails in the job to protect the individual's right, because how can that possibly deliver up all the evidence to the tribunal, let alone give the person who's being accused of the charge the right to properly respond. I have uh, seen, and I write about, the cost of being falsely accused. Uh, I've had cases where that has uh, happened. I have also seen what happens when your expectations are confounded, when you make assumptions based sometimes on quite a lot of evidence, but it's written down and then you go into court and the thing crumbles before your eyes because of new evidence or some other statement which contradicts something which, is, um, which everyone had believed to be the truth. And time and again I was reminded how due process is about more than the result. It's about people feeling that they have had a fair trial, but it's also, particularly from the complainants and the witnesses' point of view, uh, the feeling that they've been heard. So that works in a civil sense as well, because I did family law, and family law has a version of a trial. It has a finding of fact hearing. This, the burden of proof is lower. It's what's more likely to have happened. And the sentence is not a punishment uh, in a criminal sense. It's a impacts on the, application, on the application that's being made. But the point about a finding a fact hearing in a family case is that the judge makes findings about what has happened or not. And watching people, and I represented a lot of women who accuse their ex-partner of a variety of uh, domestic abuse, for them the process was as much about being heard and being believed than it was about the consequences about punishment and so on. No one, I don't think, going back to the question, uh, can argue that the hashtag revolution, if I call it that, has been anything other than a good thing in terms of changing our society. Of, of, if it means that more middle-aged men think twice about putting their hands on an intern's knee, obviously that is better. But the same argument is being used by other people to make different points. Trump would say exactly this, raise exactly the same question in order to push through, as he called it, a ban on Muslims, the harm caused by, to his innocent few, he thinks, uh, worth 
the social good as he interprets it. And that's really the danger of it. Who gets to decide? Who gets to decide the harm? Who gets to decide the social good? And that's why I think due process, whilst deeply flawed, is the fairest way to protect an individual's right. Let's pick up then lots of really big and interesting ideas. Let's talk about what this trend, the, the hashtag MeToo trend, let's call it for the sake of argument, means for individuals. Is there, I think, Emma, you would say there is a perceived social good, and there's certainly an agreement amongst all of you that the fact that these things are being brought out into the daylight is a good thing. But where would you strike the balance then between the accused and the accuser? I think that um, I want to I want to make a clear distinction um, because I think that these are two really important points that we're, the four of us are all bringing up um, between hashtag me too and trial by media right like trial by media involves an accusation a verdict me too is actually just the personal experience and most me too stories that have been shared um on social media don't even name an alleged perpetrator right but isn't so, what follows trial by media social media as opposed to the press or what i do on the radio isn't it the same thing in another form uh no <laughs> what i'm saying is that um that a trial by media, and, and I mean, perhaps these terms can be mushed together in other contexts, but I think that for at least this discussion on stage, it's important for us to distinguish between a trial by media, such as like Harvey Weinstein, where there's a named perpetrator, we, you know, a bunch of people are going to distance themselves from a singular person versus hashtag me too, which is the social phenomenon uh, where a bunch of women and men and transgender people are uh, just saying like, this has happened to me too. And often people will just post hashtag me too and not even include a story at all, right? So I just wanted to kind of... But aren't the two things really clearly linked? Can one exist without the other? Isn't it an event which undoubtedly was a watershed moment, the Harvey Weinstein accusations and what's followed? Could me too exist without that event? Uh, you clearly don't think so. Well, I think the two things have fed off each other for good or for ill. Yeah, they, they sir, I mean, there, there is a moment right now where um, a bunch of people are dealing with these issues in many different ways. I think that some people might respond by, by clinging on to this trial by media because of some of the things that I was talking about earlier, where there's a need for some villain to be identified and marked and then brought, you know what I mean? then there are other people who are dealing with the same issues at the same time, year 2018, a lot's happening right now, who haven't felt the need to express themselves through this trial by media. Um, and, and all they really want is, uh, as, as you mentioned, kind of the feeling of being heard, right? So, so I think that there are two different things. Sometimes they overlap, but I, I do think it's important to separate the two terms. I mean, there's a reason that the two terms exist, right? David, would you agree? Would you make that separation? It's become a kind of meme um, in certain sections of the media that Me Too has gone too far. So you hear it said quite a lot or written quite a lot, uh, not least by women um, actually saying Me Too. And that means actually that what Me Too means to people is no longer just the hashtag. And in fact, it's not no longer just the, um, I say just, because actually it was the most significant thing about it in many ways. Or one of, um, uh, it's no longer the recounting of experience by people 
as if to say, a lot of us have been through this, and that's the thing that you have to do preparatory to saying, and a lot of us aren't going to put up with it anymore. And, those, and that's the second part of the Me Too. Um, the problem with people's understanding of Me Too is, lies in two areas, really. First, we don't have an agreement always about what constitutes bad sexual politics and bad sexual behaviour. In other words, this is contested ground and is incredibly, uh, incredibly difficult. And we come to agreements about it with incredible difficulty. And some of those agreements that we come to are done in the face of assumptions, particularly that older people, but not just, have made about the world for the whole of their lives and are now effectively being told, well, actually, you know that thing, that kind of thing that you thought was etiquette between a man and a woman, or it was all right to kind of, you know, make this kind of kind of lewd comment because women quite like it. It's like the kind of the famous whistle by the builder. Well, actually, what we're telling you now is that this constitutes a form of unacceptable behaviour. And not only that, following on that, if you indulge in this unacceptable behaviour, you can expect a response. And at worst, and this is part of the problem on campuses as well, you can expect to be sanctioned because campuses these days are very highly into sanctioning. So those are the kind of the two elements. And then you get the, the, the further element, which is the Me Too, which is supposedly about Me Too, which is about naming people who are supposed to have done things and so on in the name of Me Too, although actually it's not essential to the, the, you know, the, the, the business of creating a hashtag and saying I was uh, involved in that as well. So actually what Me Too has become when people talk about it is not just that. They think of it, uh, people tend to think of it as a movement and a whole series of very kind of complex responses to what is in any case an incredibly complex area and as if that wasn't difficult enough we now have this for people who aren't aware of it this battle raging about uh, transgenderism and self-definition which adds an, an additional Layer level of, of complexity to it so uh, probably best to keep that separate for the for the moment but all i'm saying is that we are now in highly contested territory people would have agreed once about what they thought rape was it was a, quite a limited thing and so on. Well, they, they, you know, in other, words, in other words, it seemed, when I was young, a young man, it seemed relatively clear what rape was, okay? Someone said, no, you said yes. And that's kind of, that was kind of how people tended to, tend to define it. We don't look at it in that way anymore. I'm going to take a step back from that statement because I think that opens another whole uh, area. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. But Sarah, as a lawyer, as you watch these things play out, yeah. as they do, it, does it seem to you that it's as if people have, I, I'm, I'm going to avoid the phrase trial by media, but it's as if people have 
taken the world as they find it and almost decided to contest it themselves. And isn't there something to be said for that? Absolutely. But I, I think it goes to what was said earlier about um, being heard, because this is a form of whistleblowing, Me Too, and that's why I, I nicknamed it the hashtag revolution, because it was people who had felt voiceless being given a voice. They didn't want necessarily to choose the authorities because the consequences were too significant for them to deal with or because they didn't want to go through the trauma of it or because uh, they weren't in a position at the time that it happened to have enough faith in their own um, sense of strength to go through with it. But this Me Too started, of course, as Emma said, and the way it started, but I also agree with David, it's become bigger than that. And it is a shorthand for talking about a change in social tone and it's got flip sides to it of course because one of the things that the law is very concerned about is is victims being named on social media the attorney general in september last year has uh, started a report to try and collect evidence about how bad it is and about how much social media plays into a jury's decision we've had various jurors being sent to prison for a couple of months at a time because they have gone to social media to look for answers about their trial. So it plays in on both sides of the coin. And Emma, what do you think about this debate uh, that you've already discussed about, uh, in a sense, the social norms, the changing nature of social norms? How much does that complicate this debate? Are people talking at cross purposes a lot of the time? Um, Social movements are like, occupied by many people who have very different visions of what that social movement is like there are so many feminists who do feminism very differently from how I would do feminism and then it's not like I can go around saying well they're not real feminists but it means that like they're definitely it's like when someone says like there are when we we can all acknowledge for example that there are very bad drivers it doesn't mean that everyone should stop driving cars it means there are people who drive in ways that we wouldn't agree with, right? It's the same way with social movements, right? There are many people who don't use hashtag me too the way that I've historically wanted to talk about sexual assault for myself. And like, I think, like, personally, I never named my attacker. He, for some reason, named himself. (laughs) And that was always interesting to me um, because then it kind of spun into, like, at least within the community at Columbia and then started to snowball into a sort of trial by media. So um, I think I would have loved for my case to have been handled with discretion so that I didn't have to talk about rape every time I meet someone at a party, right? But this is, I think that this is proof of uh, society's hunger for these kinds of stories. Um, so you asked a question about cross purposes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, have the rules changed? And is that, is that complicating this debate? Um, is, is it allowing people to misconstrue it and say, actually, Me Too's gone too far? Is it, is it changing the terms of reference in a way that's really quite unhelpful? Like, I think that when people turn um, what should be really nuanced conversations that begin with listening <laughs> into these like um, crusades, we often lose sight of what the survivor themselves really wants. Um, And, you know, maybe the survivor does want some sort of like galvanized crusade, but I don't think that most survivors want to be known as like rape victims. 
exists for the rest of their lives either. And just to move on, in a sense, yes. this you make this distinction between trial by media and, and Me Too. But if what is happening is that, that these specific cases are being thrashed out in public, yeah. is that, do you think, a useful thing because the legal system has failed to confront sexual assault, rape, historically in the recent in 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 the last 50 years i think that the movement that it's generated has been useful i think as as sarah said like me too has changed culture in ways that i'm sure we're all very grateful for um i think that every case is necessarily different and i can't make a sweeping judgment about every single trial. No, but yeah. in, in the broader sense, is it is it compensating for a legal system that isn't taking this seriously? I Yeah, I guess in there are some cases where I totally think so. I think it's great. There are some cases where I'm like, ooh, <laughs> I don't know if I, if I loved that. Sarah, what does that tell us about the legal system? That it has been too slow to change things like the definition of consent, which um, David's definition of consent from his early life. I don't think, I think in a courtroom, the acquiescence... No, it's changed. Well, people who make the decision are jurors, not the judge. So it's society that is deciding on guilt or innocence. But it, it will be the judge who will tell the jurors what the definition of consent is. And it's, that's been too slow to be uh, more nuanced, uh, to bring in things like uh, avoidance of consent during an act of intercourse, to bring in things like acquiescence, to bring in the nuance into sexual relations into the courtroom. And so you still have people on jurors who have what, for use of a shorthand, I'm going to say is an old-fashioned view of consent. And I think what Me Too did was shake that and say, no, no, it's but too slow to keep up with this. In which case, David, mob justice, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, actually, it's, it's probably one of the most important things that's happened in terms of rethinking the legal approach to what are very serious crimes. Yeah, mob justice is great until they get you or somebody close to you or somebody you know, at which point it becomes the worst conceivable thing that can happen. And, uh, and it actually is a sign of social breakdown. That you, actually, that you can't use due process. And to go back again to the thing that uh, Emma said right at the beginning, because it, 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 it's actually really important, this, and I was, I was realising it, we, have, we want the law to be perfect, but it can't be. And we want things to be perfectible and justice to be perfectible, but it won't be. So the question also is, what do we do with the bits in between and how do we react to the bits in between so that... I mean, essentially, the, the, the best individual rule of behaviour always has been do to others as you would have done unto you. It just is. I, I can't think of very many circumstances under which it doesn't work. So if you would want to be treated fairly, then you will want to try on the whole, if you have a sense of justice, to treat others fairly too. Now, what I was getting at really was that uh, and it's important, is that one of the things is that the, there's a lot of these lines are not set. Uh, when I, I was actually alive while there was still not a crime of marital rape. I can't, I can't actually believe it. 
Um, you know, you try to try to try telling my kids that when I was twenty, I was only when I was twenty, you could beat children with a belt in Scottish schools. It was absolutely not only legal, but you'd find plenty of people to tell you it didn't do them any harm and it was good for them and uh, and so on. Which actually, incidentally, I found a kind of relative in for those some of those women in the media who argued that they'd been subject to kind of low-level uh, l- sexual ludery unwanted and it hadn't done them any harm. And then the occasion one say it, it kind of felt like those days yet again. So we're on, so we're constantly shifting. So one of the things I think we should do is, is give a degree of latitude. I don't mean you don't point it out, but that you don't point it out vindictively to, 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 to that large section of people that is that are coping with the change uh, and so on. But I think that's different from something like what we call a mob mentality. Uh, but that comes back down to this kind of this desire to take, to take you know, the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court thing. There's an accusation of a very serious sexual assault, maybe a rape, at when he was 17 at high school. Now, as somebody's written in the New York Times today, and I think it's true, you and I have no idea whether this is true or not. We don't know. Some people might take the view that even if it is true, the fact that he was 17 at the time uh, offers him a pass out. Some people will take the view that once you've done something like that and you've not properly atoned for it, it's unforgivable and you can never be something like uh, a Supreme Court judge. But what I'm interested in is the way in which a lot of people have taken sides according to their political views. And it's a form of mob rule. Emma, where would you stand on that? What you're bringing out and is exciting to think about is really the difference between mob justice and education right like i think that i i don't like to think that the the solution to violence is like the expression of like verbal violence right like i'd love to see a society when in which rather than villainizing people who've committed sexual crimes we could like work with them to educate them to make them better because then we'd actually have like fewer perpetrators of sexual assault in our society. <laughs> Sometimes the way that social movements work, they there needs to be a sort of lashing out moment when all of, you know, you know when you first feel something and it feels like insurmountable and you're like, "Oh my gosh, this is the biggest feeling I've ever had in my life." But then the next day you wake up and it's a little bit more manageable and you're like, oh, wait, I, I could actually talk to the person I just had a fight with yesterday. And like you start your your emotions subside over time. I think it's the same way with social bodies as it is with physical bodies. Right. Like at first there's this lashing out. Like I think it's also been really interesting for me because I came out as a sexual assault survivor before the Me Too movement happened. And I sort of went through my own whole trial by media and then the Harvey Weinstein uh, accusations came out and I saw this social movement take shape. So I think that I got to work through all of these emotions on my own. And yeah, I, I, I think there was a time when I was like, oh my gosh, I wish I could just like murder my rapist, right? But like now I'm like, oh, I, I actually think that he's probably changed. And I think that that's something that we could expect the people who but it, participate in these movements. But in a sense, well. a, a much more dull and mundane question is where does the law, in a sense, sit in relation to these situations where you have accusations, you have people taking sides, you, you know, A says this, B says that. Where does the law come into it? Is, are we allowing the people, whoever they may be, the mob, to 
decide on all our behalfs when actually we've not tried to go through due process. We've not tried to put the evidence out there in any systematic way. For me, I just can't um, unsee the link between the whole due process law aspect of things and trial by media. I mean, often the cases that garner the most attention and therefore the most trial by media are the most high profile cases, right? Um, whereas there's so many cases of sexual assault, like just ask 10 of your female friends, I'm sure you'll find one where there was a case of sexual assault, but like the sides didn't have enough money to have a crazy lawsuit or like this, you know what I mean? Like there's so many cases of sexual assault that happen on an under the radar have to be solved interpersonally. Um, so, so I do think that, uh, when law comes into play, it's often because there's an, a, or not because, but like bound to the extra pressure of trial by media. I'm going to ask one quick last question, which is if we're in this situation where lots of things are happening online in the media, uh, and we're kind of accepting, it seems to me almost that this is a new state of affairs and perhaps the legal system will catch up at some stage. Will we get to the point where the burden of proof is very much on the accused to prove themselves innocent than it is on the accuser to prove them guilty, if that makes sense? David? If we do get to that, we're, we've had it. Uh, we really have had it. I mean, I've, I do sometimes worry that uh, we get that way. Those of you who've been following it, there was the case of the accused, serial accuser, anonymous accuser of so-called VIPs of not just rape, but murder. Nick. Nick. That's his nickname. Uh, nickname. Um, that's uh, his pseudonym. And it was relatively obvious to the be from the beginning to me that... This was a series of fantasies. It, not, past because studying things like how conspiracy theories work and how the internet works to build them up, it was it was relatively clear where they where they seemed to come from. I couldn't be sure, but it seemed very very unlikely. A whole series of places, including the BBC, took Nick up in a very big way, partially because he spoke well. I remember one of the correspondents saying, "Well, you know, he speaks really well, etc." And I thought. You think somebody who speaks well can't be a fantasist, and so on. As a result of that, between us, we made the last days of a public figure, who many of us probably wouldn't have liked that much, completely appalling. Um, and I'd like to think that we would learn the lessons from something, from something like that, which is the capacity both to give empathy to people who say that they have been the victims of assault and to give them the support that they need, but not necessarily, to, well, not actually to make a priori judgment about particular people who are accused until we have seen the evidence and certainly not on the basis of our own kind of personal, uh, personal likings and to be aware within ourselves, the thing that we talked about earlier, which is a kind of vindictive desire to push onto the other the full sins, which actually very, very secretly maybe some of us know are kind of hiding somewhere in our own psyches. Sarah. I think David picked the perfect example. And also what is going to come is the backlash to that. So Nick was charged in July with 10 counts of perverting the course of justice. There is still more to come, which is why we don't know his real name. The case took years to investigate millions of pounds and so on. But what it also did was 
become caught in a change of approach with the police, particularly the Met Police, but elsewhere, which was under Alison Saunders, who's about to step down as DPP, which is to believe the victim until proved otherwise. So in terms of flipping the burden, the police did that already. And the consequence of that is that they had a defendant in mind, and then they would look for how, what evidence they needed to get a guilty verdict for that person, not investigate. But we case. know why we arrived at that place, uh, which was, of course, all the crimes of sexual was, abuse, which yeah, were not believed were for years and years and years. Uh, completely. But the consequence of taking it to the other extreme and flipping the burden for guilt until proven innocent is that you then open up a vacuum which is stepped into by extremists who then will seek to clamp down on the individual's right as a consequence. So hashtag me, me too has gone too far, for example. The idea that we have to stop the movement and go back again. Or uh, the police have gone too far in their evidence and now we go back to um, cases where lots of people have been writing, of course, about the trials which have collapsed because of disclosure that has, like Liam Allen and so on. Uh, and people, some correspondents write about how it's gone too far and how we need to row back. And so that's the, the danger of flipping the one, which I think has been flipped by some police forces, is to create a vacuum where you get extremists that fill it. Emma, what do you think? Um, I Yeah, I think what you two are bringing out is, uh, it, it strengthens my belief in our impulse to be that of education rather than vilification, right? So I think that when we're when we talk about the question of like, should we assume that this person is guilty, um, even if you know we we don't have certain types of evidence that we we wish we had? When someone tells me this person sexually assaulted me, whether or not they can prove to me that they've been raped or harmed or something, I think something bad definitely happened, right? Like there was an event, maybe no one saw the event, maybe, you know, there was no surveillance, maybe there's no DNA traceable proof that, you know, of this event, but there was an event that caused a rift between these two people. I think that if our first impulse could, instead of being, okay, let's go like, um, get an army to hate this person, what if we were more like, let's negotiate with this person and see if there's some way that we can make amends because there's no denying that this, this rift happened, um, whether it was in a room or in the office or something, right? I think that would create an environment in which people are uh, more comfortable to own up to mistakes they've made, um, whether extreme mistakes or small mistakes. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much, David, Sarah, Emma. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. For more podcasts, make sure you like and subscribe our SoundCloud and iTunes page to never miss an episode of Philosophy for Our Times.